Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz percussionist, composer, and writer Barrett Martin. He opened up about his new 2021 CD called Still Point, recorded between 2019 and 20, when he lived in a remote cliff house in the wildlife. He is well known for his work with the Seattle rock band Skin Yard, Screaming Trees, Mad Season, along with playing on albums by R.E.M., Stone Temple Pilots, and Queens of the Stone Age. He studied jazz and classical music and has completed his bachelor's and master's degrees in anthropology, linguistics, and ethnomusicology. His story is fascinating. Dig this interview. I'm great. How are you doing? Hey, good, man. Thanks for taking a minute out today. Yeah, happy. Happy to talk with you. Right on, man. Let's run right into your latest album and book, Still Point. And what I want to know, was this all kind of predicated off of the pandemic and everything that was going on? Well, no, it was, I mean, it was a a coincidence, but a happy coincidence, because my wife and I had been traveling for the previous year. So we moved out of Seattle in 2018, and for most of 2019, we were traveling. So we, we spent several months in New Mexico, and we spent a few months in New York City. We were kind of trying to figure out where we wanted to live, kind of, you know, more permanently. But we ended up coming back to Washington because a friend of ours sent us uh, an email of a snapshot of a of a uh, a listing to rent this remote house, and we thought, you know what, let's just like go like way out into the wilderness and you know focus on our spiritual practice and work on our books because my wife was writing her first book. And I'm always writing and always doing music. And so we just thought that's the perfect place to go until we figure out where we want to be more permanently. And that was in the, uh, it was almost exactly the summer solstice of 2019. So it was six months before everything started to uh, get bad with the pandemic. Wow, how serendipitous. So what happened after the pandemic came? How did life change for you? I mean, it would seem as though what you were doing before the pandemic is what everybody ended up doing during the pandemic, save for the stress and all of the heartache. We had heartache, too. I mean, you know, I had friends that got really sick from the virus and were, were intubated. You know, they were put on ventilators and they survived. But, you know, they were really, really messed up. My wife, one of her friends from high school died. Her friend's two children also died. So we we did know people that were directly affected by it, and we just kind of had to, I mean, the nature of the, the place where we lived was, you know, it was so remote that we weren't really going to go anywhere anyway, and it was a, and it was a incredibly beautiful place because it was right on the sea cliff that overlooks the Strait of Juan de Fuca, and it's almost the northernmost point of of uh, the continental United States. I, I don't know if there's probably something a little bit further north, but we were pretty far north. And so we just kind of started, I mean, we could go to the grocery store. There was a grocery store that we could drive to and we could get provisions. And we just kind of just stayed home. And like everybody else, you know, we just cooked every meal, didn't really go anywhere. We'd ride our, our bicycles. And mostly we we meditated and worked on our books, and I wrote a whole bunch of music. So how did this journey into jazz and music begin for you? What was the flashpoint, kind of where were you born and raised, and kind of that early part of your life? 
Well, this is actually an area where, because I, mean, I grew up in Olympia, but kind of south and, you know, not really in the city, like out in the country. And my dad's whole side of the family was from the Olympic Peninsula because they were loggers that moved there um, in the early 1900s, or not like like 1900, but probably about 19, 1930, I think is when the family migrated because they were originally from Arkansas and uh they were they were loggers in Arkansas too in the in the Ozark Mountains and then at some point you know the the opportunities in the Olympic Forest opened up because that's where all these giant old growth forests were so it, I mean it's kind of funny in a kind of karmic way because now you know I do a lot of environmental advocacy work trying to protect forests and and you know I've worked in the Peruvian Amazon quite a bit and, but my family used to cut those trees down, you know, and they didn't get rich doing it either. They they literally worked for the company store and just were paid with script, which is fake money, basically. But they, um, you know, they settled out there. So as a kid, I spent a lot of time going out there, visiting aunts and uncles and exploring the Olympic Forest and the Olympic Mountains, which which is just an incredible mountain range. But there's also um, a lot of wildlife out there because it's not a, a heavily populated part of Washington State. I mean, Washington has a lot of places like that that are very open where there just aren't a lot of people, and this happens to be one of those places. So, um, yeah, it kind of reminded me of, of my childhood, but also as a middle-aged man, I saw all this stuff that I'd never seen before that – you know, my mind was just more awake and more aware. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, what musicians kind of inspired you and how you kind of got on to the path to find your musical voice. The, the sort of short version of the long story would be that I really did start as a, as a fan of jazz and specifically the old big band and swing jazz that my grandparents uh, grew up listening to. And they had a pretty good record collection of old 78s, although when they bought them, they would have been new 78s. But by the time I started listening to them, it was, you know, these old, you know, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Tommy Dorsey, Benny Goodman. You know, they they were pretty hip people. You know, they were that World War II generation. So they were real salt of the earth and and cool and, you know, had pretty good taste, you know, for not being professional musicians. So I grew up with that record collection. And then my dad had you know, sort of like that, you know, 1970s record collection of outlaw country. So it was, you know, Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and, you know, that kind of stuff. So by the time I got into high school, I had a, you know, a pretty good, you know, palette of music uh, that I was influenced by. And of course, this is like the 1970s, 1980s. So it's way before anything digital. It was all LPs. But all through high school, I was still like totally into jazz. You know, I played in the jazz band and also was in the marching band and had a had a um, a little group in high school. And it wasn't until I got into college that I got exposed to more world music and classical music and things like that. And then, of course, you know, I landed in Seattle in 1987, right right before the grunge thing happened, and. My drumming skills were more required in the rock and roll setting than they were in the jazz. Uh, so that's just kind of how the, the path took me to Seattle. You know, I find it fascinating. You know, Jimmy Chamberlain has 
a background in jazz. Um, and, and there's a lot of rock guys that I just did not expect would have had that kind of backbone. So, you know, as a jazz musician, I look at your bio and I see, you know, R.E.M. and Mad Season and Stone Temple Pilots and all of that. I want to know, you know, what what was it like to be around because that was the epicenter for music there in the 90s. I mean, the grunge scene, Seattle, the microscope was firmly over that area. What did you learn just kind of in general that helped you grow? And what was lasting that has made you a stronger artist now, not only in music, but in writing and in general? That is a very good question. And I I, I kind of have a, a, a pretty, like, clear answer on that because those bands you just listed so rem stone temple pilots and i i would even throw in the band queens of the stone age because i played on one of their uh albums that you know really launched them you know the instruments i played on those records was not drum set it was mallet instruments like marimba vibraphone and a lot of percussion and that's all the stuff that i learned when i was studying jazz and classical when I was in music school at uh, Western Washington University. The, the only bands that I played drums with were like Screaming Trees and Mad Season. But if you listen to the records that I played on, the, you know, the drums actually, I mean, I, I'm even playing swing on the ride cymbal and I'm playing marimba and vibraphone in those bands. Like not, not on every song, obviously, but on a few of them. But when I, when I was kind of going through that formative era um and i was also doing a lot of uh recording session work in los angeles so i would go back and forth between seattle and la mostly people wanted me to do the jazzy classical stuff not the rock stuff like in rem i even played upright bass with them because i i studied upright bass at the same time that i was studying drums in music school um, and of course piano because that's required but you know you had to study two musical instruments side by side because it gives you this different way of looking at music you know i'm as good of an upright bass player as i am a drummer because i've been playing both instruments you know since the mid-1980s I, I i remember one of my music teachers saying like if you can play all this other stuff if you can play the mallets and the keyboards and the hand percussion and all that exotic stuff you'll always be able to work because somebody will always want that. And that's not always the case if you just play, you know, rock and roll drums. You know, I got to say personally, you know, I, in my twenties, I'm going to be 49 here in a few weeks. And that was kind of the, that was the bread and butter for me and all my friends. We really got into that scene. I remember even going up there in the late nineties and it was just, it was awesome. Like um, I went to one place and the drummer for, Soundgarden came in and they were like, dude, do not go up to him, whatever you do, just let him go. That's how the scene works. People kind of come in and do their thing. And I was really enamored with, but I, I got to tell you up front as a music lover, one of the best albums, one of the best creations that came out of that whole thing, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of people I know was Mad Season. One of the most sonically uh, rich sounds that came out of it. There was so much that came out. So I just want you to know up front that that was a stellar, beautiful compilation of, of musicians and music. Oh, thank you. You know, that, that really is, I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that, but I, I feel the same way too. It's a really special album because 
again a short story about a about a, a longer story is that the four of us came together you know our musical chemistry gelled really quickly like within one or two rehearsals like we had the sound and it was real natural and we didn't have to force anything uh, and what was cool about it is that we'd all you know we'd been in rock bands you know for a few years at that point um I mean, not much, you know, like each of us had only made a couple of rock albums at that point. We were open to like completely original ideas that would take it in a different direction. The band really kind of had this bluesy foundation, which I attribute a lot to uh, uh, John Baker Saunders, the bass player, um, who's, it happens to be his birthday today. But he had been playing in the Chicago blues scene and was not a rock musician, was like the anti-rock star. But he had this really cool bluesy foundation that I was able to lock right into because it reminded me of, you know, studying, you know, blues and jazz, you know, which, of course, are the precursors of rock and roll. And so then, so we had upright bass on the album, and I was playing vibes and marimba, and Mike was doing stuff on the guitar that he would never really get to do in Pearl Jam, and Lane just being the genius that he was, just kind of created the vocals in his own unique way. And it, I mean, I think we, we tracked the entire album in less than two weeks and mixed it in one week. So I, like the whole record was done in like three weeks. I just can't really think of a record that I've ever done that fast. Wow. Yeah. And that's, that's a testament to the whole thing. I mean, I even remember when Alanis Morissette was talking about how long it took for them to do Jagged Little Pill, it was like astronomically short. But I think that thing that always gets me too about the world of jazz is that we have these ideas that like, all right, Radiohead's going to the studio in five months or however many months it's going to take. You get this idea, I think, in the mainstream that there's this long time that happens in the studio. But for jazz musicians, I'm always fascinated because it's like we did it in one or two sessions. We went in. You know, half of it was improv. We never really knew each other, and they came out, and there was this beautiful gem that came out of their explorations. Yeah, and 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 I love that about jazz records. Um, I just I was uh, looking at Ron Carter, you know, the great jazz bassist, and I was looking at his Instagram page because I, for some reason, had not found it yet. And you know, he's played on over two thousand albums. Yeah. Because just like you said, you know, you go in for you know four hours or six hours and, and you do an entire record or kind of blue was done over the course of two sessions, yeah. probably which total total combined was probably four hours or maybe six hours. Cause they used to divide the sessions up in three hour blocks. I, I think, I think the music union still does that. Like it's a three hour block of time you get paid for and, and you do as much as you can in three hours. And there's something really powerful about that because you have to capture the spirit of the musicians like right then in the mood they're in and the way the weather that day is and just the way the inspiration is channeled through them. And it's very shamanic and alchemical. And it's, it's a totally different way of recording than, you know, highly produced, you know, rock and pop records um, or country music records for that matter. But um, I, I think that's why it has such a lasting imprint or thumbprint on on the American psyche. You know, I mean, jazz is, it really is, you know, like it's a completely purely American invention. Yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is. 
You know, the one thing that fascinates me about your background is you could have just as easily with your degrees gone into anthropology. You could have gone into linguistics. You could have gone into any number of things. And there's a level of you that's very renaissance in that way. So my question to you is, is, is it really because you genuinely have that artistic spirit, you that you can't quiet? What, how did your life turn out this way? Why, why wasn't it something else? Do you ever reflect on that and think, man, how did I get here? Well, yeah, because like, you know, everybody's life has that quality, right? You, you think it's going to be this, but it's that. You, you know, you start off on this journey or that pathway and it becomes this other pathway. But I, um, I, I always loved music and I knew that there was this magical quality in being a musician, like the way that you can positively affect your society, the way that you can, you know, like educate people through music and, and just by being, being a musician or a composer or a recording artist, you do this thing that, that affects people and not just in this country, but all over the world. So when my rock and roll career was kind of winding down um, in the early 2000s, I, I thought, you know what, I am going to go back to school. And, and, I, and I actually, you know, went into a, a, a PhD program. I didn't finish my PhD, but I did all my coursework and, you know, I got a master's degree. But I, I took so many classes in world music and linguistics and and cultural anthropology and I mean it was just incredible I really loved being in school and so then I became an adjunct college professor for seven years at Antioch College in in Seattle which is a branch of the one in uh, Yellow Springs Ohio the the famous you know liberal arts college which has a cool history because that's the first college in the United States that was racially and gender integrated and they started that in like 1860. I mean, it was like before the Civil War, they were, that's how they were teaching. And so I thought, well, this is really cool. I want to be a part of this lineage of, of, you know, teaching. And so I taught for seven years. I loved doing that. But then ultimately I got pulled back into being an artist. And, and it's not like I never wasn't an artist. I was still making records and I was producing records when I was, you know, being a, a professor. But um, at a certain point, it was like, well, I, I did my seven years of teaching and I loved it, but I'm really supposed to just be producing records. But, you know, the long journey of music will take you a lot of different places. It'll take you all over the world. It'll expose you to a lot of different cultures and different ways of seeing the world. And then it's your job to synthesize that into some kind of musical statement. You know, the one thing as we go through this pandemic, and if we take away all of the things, I mean, all of us have seen people leave the planet. There's been so many levels of this that's been traumatic, but there's also been lots of this where, you know, we aren't in control. Nature decided to grind the brakes down, and we're all, we've all been kind of in this more self-reflected place. And as an yeah. artist, as we reemerge and things are starting to get better, an artist, and even as a human, how do you see yourself being stronger and approaching maybe the stage or the page in a way that's different than you did before this all began? Well, one of the things we noticed from, because we're, we're, we're living in this, you know, remote area that's surrounded by wildlife. So we, we saw wildlife every day. 
But when I would read the news, I, I noticed, oh, wow, you know, like the skies are clearing over Beijing, China, because they're not manufacturing at the same rate. And a lot of people saw the blue sky for the first time, because all the time, it's it's this white, smoky haze. I've never been there, but my wife has. She She was over there a lot. And she said, you never see the blue sky in China. There was that story about how the water in uh, the Mediterranean got very clear and, and there were porpoises and, and you could see the bottom of the canals in Venice because the water was so clear. And and I think what that taught everybody was that if we just slow down and, you know, and stop doing all the, the stuff that's polluting, the earth will rebound. It'll It'll come back and pretty quickly it does. And you know, you see that with rivers. Like, if you stop dumping pollutants into a river, the river will filter it out, and it'll get it'll clean itself. But you just have to stop putting pollutants into it. I think the you know twelve or fourteen months when everything was kind of locked down, you know, we everybody around the world saw this, and everybody knows this in their mind. But then it's up to the individual to figure out, like, okay, what can I do to help? clean the earth and or stop doing anything to pollute it or minimize my pollution. And uh, that's the thing we all have to think about. It's a, it, these are individual decisions and individual choices, but, but the earth was really teaching us something. It was really showing us, here's what it could be like if you choose to save this planet. Here's what, here's what will happen. You know, you get a, every day you get to wake up, you get to be a creative creature and, and make music and, and write and do, you know, you, you have your art. What is the greatest part about being a creative person, about being a professional musician for you? Well, I will say this. When, when you decide to become a, a professional artist of any kind, you know, musician or writer or filmmaker or visual artist or what, or poet, you, will be challenged in ways that you you can't really imagine because yes it's true a lot of it is creative and like i go to my studio and i work and some days i'm just not inspired but i just go and i make myself do you know just play an instrument or work on something and and an idea emerges and this is the the thing about being an artist is that it doesn't happen like it's not like you suddenly have this burst of inspiration and you, you realize everything in its totality all at once. I mean, maybe that happens to some people, but I've never had that happen. It's always been this just kind of slow, methodical, chip away, work on that song, develop it, evolve it, and then at a certain point, there it is. And the same thing is true with the way that I write. I work on a, on a story, and then I have a group of stories, and then I have a book. But like I was editing my new book like up until just like a few days ago before it went to the printer because I wanted to keep perfecting it as much as I could. So the rewarding part is when you when you see the finished product of what you've created, you know, a beautiful album, a, a really entertaining book of stories, or you or you play an amazing show and everybody in the room is transformed by it. You just feel really good inside that you help bring some light into that room and into those people's hearts. You know, that's, that's the really beautiful part of it. And I, I mean, I just have to say that for me, that's what inspires me to be an artist in the first place. But there's just so much other stuff you have. That, I mean, you know, if you have your own record label or your own business like I do, there's just so much of this other stuff you have to do to be an artist. You know, you still have to manage all that, all those details. And so, you know, it, 
you really develop a very well-rounded mind in, in your ability to do art and do business and communicate with people and, and, and you know, promote yourself to the world and, and, you know, still do great art. I mean, I think it, it, it might be, I mean, second only to like being, you know, like an astronaut or a professional athlete or something, you know, it's, it, it's like the most challenging job you can have, but, it's also, it's incredibly rewarding, too. Absolutely. You know, everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately you live your life. You have a perception of you. Who do you think you are? Oh, wow. That's a, <laughs> that's like one of those questions my wife would ask me. That's a good <laughs> one, though. <laughs> she's, she's very intuitive. I'll, I'll tell you what I am. I, I am a, a person that really loves this world. I really, I love this earth. I love this planet. And, and I really do love people and I love culture. I love the diversity of human culture and how interesting it is like all over the world and, you know, all the different places that I've been to and, and that my wife and I have traveled to and people I've worked with. It's just really incredible. And so I think I'm one of those people that just wants to protect the, the world and protect people, but I also want people to wake up and see how intimately they are connected to the natural world, to their environment, to the animals, to every part of their life. And I, I just hope that somehow the, the music that I make and the bands that I've been in over the years and you know the stories and books that I've been writing in the last few years, I just hope it kind of helps people wake up to see that connectedness. And and I feel that way because I I grew up, you know, in a forest, you know, like on a homestead, you know, where we grew our own vegetables and had, you know, grew our own livestock. And that, that was very common in the 70s, that, that whole back to the land thing. But I've seen as I've, you know, become a, a middle-aged adult, and I see how we can be disconnected from that. Like, we're connected... In a, in a different way through the internet and social media, but then we are also disconnected from the fact that we're natural biological beings. And so that connection to the earth is really important. I mean, it's paramount really to, for us to survive. So I've really, that's, that's what I, what I do and that's who I think I am. I think I'm somebody that tries to awaken people to the beauty of their naturalness and, and the connection to this planet. Right on, man. Barrett, hey, thank you for opening up. Thank you for your time today, man. Good luck with everything as we move forward. Thanks a lot, Joe. It was a pleasure talking with you and great questions. Very, very good questions. <laughs> Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Washington, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Barrett for his time, music, and cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.